Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Bridge Kids. You're dismissed. Thank you for being with us for worship today. For the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of Acts, and I hope uh, you brought a Bible today because you will need one, the book of Acts. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible, we have a bunch of Bibles on the table out there, and every week we set those out so you can pick one up if you want one. And um, you're going to need one if you're going to follow along uh, today. And if you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, you can just take one of those Bibles home. If you've got a smartphone, turn that book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Or down, you can download the Bible right now while you're sitting there, okay, if you don't have one. Now, the book of Acts is 28 chapters. We're starting a series today. Here is an opportunity for you to learn a lot about the Bible if you uh, connect with this series. When I became a follower of Christ, um, I attended churches where they preached through the Bible one book at a time. And I couldn't wait to go back the next week. And I didn't want to miss because I wanted to know what happens next. It's one of the best ways for you to learn the book, uh, learn the Bible. And the book of Acts is just loaded with uh, information that ties the Bible together. So, here we go. In May of 2010, uh, CNN Money reported about a real estate listing in Dallas, Texas. And the headline read, Converted Church. If you know Dallas, we lived there five years. There's a lot of churches in Dallas. Here we had a converted church. Once it had been a church, now it was somebody's house. According to John Whiteside, the realtor showing the house, uh, quote, desanctified churches are the number one type of building converted to residential use. I bet you didn't know that, did you? The article said the altar has been adapted for use as a granite and stainless steel themed kitchen in homage of the cooking gods. The choir loft has been rewired for a home theater. Awesome. It's noted that there was no longer a baptistry, but now there was a soaking tub. There was also a game room, a music, a music room, an exercise studio, and there were 11 bedrooms, 15,000 square feet in all. And you could get it all for about 2 million bucks. You know, that's pretty good. For Dallas, that's pretty good real estate. Now, there's a bit of sadness in that story. I don't know what you think of that. You know, it makes some people angry. I doesn't. It's just a story. But there is a bit of sadness when you think that this is a desanctified church that once had been a place of worship, where hopefully the word of God had been taught and that lives have been changed. But you know, there's a good reminder here for us: the church isn't a building, is it? The church is people. The church is a living organism that's connected to Jesus Christ, the head. And the church is made up of genuine followers of Christ who are his body, the body of Christ. We call it the church. The story of the book of Acts is just how it all got started. So let's jump in 
Today the stage is set as Luke the writer sets up the backstory for the starting of the church in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to begin today in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And uh, just let me read that and get the, get the picture here. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So, verses 1 through 5 is setting the context in the life of Christ. Setting the context in the life of Christ. So if you brought a Bible, or or if you grabbed one of those Bibles coming in, it's page 758. The book of Acts, you need to understand, is a follow-up to the Gospel of Luke. The book of Acts is a follow-up to the Gospel of Luke. And here's how the book of Acts begins. In my former book, the book of Luke, Theophilus, a person, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Um, We're going to look at Luke in just a second. Let me comment on Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God or love by God. And... um, Some have felt in history that um, Luke was just using a name, a lover of God, and so this was like to people who love God, that the book was written for a group of people, and he just uses this name. And um, But Theophilus was a very common name in the first century, a a Roman name, and um, likely Theophilus was a real person, a real individual, He was a Gentile, meaning he was not a Jewish person. Um, Perhaps he is a wealthy person, a wealthy patron. Very likely, Theophilus is the one who financed Luke, um, enabled him to have a writing project. In fact, two writing projects that are quite significant. Um, Luke's work, the book of Luke and the uh, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, is longer than all of the Apostle Paul wrote. Um, pretty significant amount of information. Um, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is how the beginning of the Gospel of Luke begins. He writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that, I've been, that have been fulfilled among us. So this is after the fact. He's writing about all the events regarding the life of Jesus, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses. Well, who were those eyewitnesses? Well, the disciples, especially the 11 disciples. And there were others besides the 11, a group of women. There were uh, up to 500 people had witnessed the life of Jesus and his resurrection. Verse 3, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke 
was an educated man. Luke was an historian. Luke has a very significant vocabulary. He's not like the, uh, it's not like the Gospel of John. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, one of the disciples, was a fisherman. His vocabulary is fairly simple. He talks about life and death and light and darkness, and he uses the word believe 98 times, and I love the book of John, but his vocabulary is just different than Luke, okay? I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. See? There it is. He's writing for Theophilus. Now, here he uses a title, most excellent What does that mean? Well, it could just be an honorary title, but likely, and Luke will use this term later in the book of Acts for very high government officials. Likely Theophilus is a high government official, probably a Roman, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, Theophilus could have been a seeker. He could have been a new believer, but He wanted something done. And uh, this isn't just a man's book. This is going to be inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there's a connection how God worked through Theophilus to bring about the book of Acts. Okay? So Luke is both an author and a a physician. Um, And we know that, Colossians 4.14. And Paul says, our dear friend Luke... The doctor and Demas sends greeting. And so the word doctor there is a word for a physician. And um, we know uh, a lot about Luke. And we, we, we pick up little bits and pieces through the whole book of Acts. And we're going to see that. And sometimes when Luke writes in first person, he says we. It means he's there. So uh, we'll look for that as we go. We come to verse 2. Until the day he was taken up to heaven... That's the ascension. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Uh, The ascension of Christ is mentioned in both Luke and Acts. Luke wrote them both. Uh, For some it seems repetitive. Why Why would he mention the ascension in each book when Jesus was taken up? And let me just stop and say something about the ascension because we're going to look at that. But think in terms of very important concept in the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead. We call that the resurrection. However, 40 days later, Jesus ascends into heaven. We call that the ascension. That's really important. We're going to touch on that today. But keep in, keep in mind the difference between the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Here's Luke's description of the ascension in the book of Luke. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, by the way, that's going to be near the Mount of Olives, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's a really short description of the ascension, but that's it. That is really the ascension, and that's what happened. But it's just kind of how he's going to close the book of of Luke. But he mentions it there. Um, And also in um, verse 2, it says, Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. 
apostles, is, are, that concept is going to be a very technical one uh, in the New Testament. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a gifted person. It's a foundational gift in the church. Uh, these were huge leaders, and one of, the, one of the really important things about their role was they helped set the foundation to the church before the Bible was written. The New Testament had not been written, and God raised up authoritative leaders who could speak for him, and there was, it was God speaking through them. And uh, there needed to be that kind of authority to establish a church without the rest of the New Te- Testament being written. Now, personally, I don't think that there are apostles like Peter and James and John and Paul today. That's my opinion. If you mean apostle, this is a messenger, that apostle is a sent one, okay. But I'm talking about, for me, a technical concept. When Paul says, I'm an apostle, to me it's a very technical concept. We're going to learn a lot about Paul and his ministry in the book of Acts. Um, so uh, we refer to the apostles, and so if we go back to the book of Luke six through twelve, uh, six twelve through sixteen, here are the names, uh, the names of the apostles that he refers to here: Simon, also named Peter, his brother Andrew, uh, James, and John. They are brothers. And then Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alpha. So there's another James now. Simon the Zealot, another Simon. Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Two Judases, okay? Different people. That's 12. When we get to the book of Acts, Judas is dead because he has hanged himself. Now we come to verse 3. Jesus' post-resurrection ministry occurred over 40 days, followed by his ascension. So we're getting an order. This is the backstory to the start of the church, okay? After his suffering, he, Jesus, presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. After his suffering, that's kind of a key concept. And the suffering is a broad term. We think of it, well, yeah, he suffered. It hurt. Crucifixion hurts. Yes, it does. His suffering includes his rest, arrest. It includes um, the trials, the humiliation, um, the scourging. You know, they made fun of him. They spat on him. They put a crown of thorns on him, and then they nailed him to a cross. That is his suffering. If you've seen the movie, The Passion of Christ, the passion is that word, suffering. Same word right here. After his passion, he presented himself to them. So after the resurrection, he gave many convincing proofs. Convincing proofs, important concept in the first century. These were like courtroom evidences. This evidence was really strong that if you could have had it, you could have made a courtroom case about the resurrection. I'll tell you what, this is so convincing to them that they were all willing to die later because of the truth of all these things. This is a big deal. They, They didn't imagine these things. They believed them to their core because of what they had experience with Jesus. 
So Jesus uh, spent time with them over 40 days. He selected the time. Think about that. That's five and a half weeks. 40 days, and he instructs them about the kingdom of God. That's an important concept in the book of Acts. It's an important concept in the life of Jesus. We're going to see this unfold. It's about his reign. It's about God's influence on earth. It includes God's plan in the Old Testament and God's plan in the New Testament that's going to result in an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus prayed for. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus instructed his disciples beforehand not to leave Jerusalem until they had received the Father's gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. So it's a specific time. Do not leave Jerusalem. Now, that's easy to understand. Okay, don't leave Jerusalem. But think about these guys. Where are they from? Most of them are from Galilee. That's a long ways off. It's way up north. Most of these guys are fishermen. They have been away from their family for a few weeks. Um, they don't like big cities. And what happened in Jerusalem? Remember Peter on the night Jesus betrayed? Peter was scared to death that he was going to be arrested just like Jesus and he might be nailed to a cross too. And that was reasonable fear, by the way. I think I'd have been a lot like Peter that night. Now, Jesus appears with them for 40 days, and he says, go back to Jerusalem. Are you sure about that, Lord? You know, what can we do in Jerusalem? Um, It's a significant ask. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. So, um, if we go back to uh, Luke 24, we see where a promise comes, verses 42 through 49. We've got a significant uh, passage here. See, you're going to need to follow in the book of Acts, and I'm going to, when we jump to another passage, I'll have that passage for you. So Luke 24, this is the last chapter in the book of Luke. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets, there are a bunch. There are major prophets and minor prophets, 12 minor prophets, and the Psalms. The Messiah is referred to in the book of Songs. Next slide. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance... For the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning where? At Jerusalem. Acts 1, it hasn't happened yet. You are witnesses of these things. Next slide. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. And this is where that promise comes in. To stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. They don't have what it's going to take, but they will have power what they need if they go to the city and wait. Um, 
just a quick comment about back to verse 5 in, in uh, Acts. Uh, for John baptized with water. John was uh, a cousin of Jesus. This is not, uh, keep in mind, John the Baptist is not John the disciple. Okay, just remember that. Most of you get it. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus, and he uh, was, uh, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would have a ministry, Isaiah 40, and he would be the one that would prepare the way for the Lord, and, and he would be a voice in the wilderness, and he would make the way straight. And, he, and so John had this ministry. He showed up preaching, and uh, he, he didn't mess with it. He, he just told it straight. And he said, um, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he called people to repent and turn back to God and get right with God. And, get re- get, and the whole point was to get their hearts ready because the Messiah is here. The king is going to be here, and you need to be ready for him. You need to meet him. And so when Jesus showed up and he began to preach, there was a significant number of people ready to hear. They'd heard about him. They'd heard that somebody was coming and Jesus shows up. So John had this preparing. And what John did was when people repented and they said, I'm in, I want to do this, I want my heart to be right, they got baptized uh, in the Jordan River, a, a water baptism by John. Now Jesus is saying, There's going to be another baptism, but it's not going to be a water baptism. It's going to be a baptism by the Holy Spirit. It's coming in Acts chapter 2. We aren't there yet, but we've talked about baptism of the Holy Spirit. We talked about it in the book of Galatians. And one of the key things that happens when um, a person is baptized by the Holy Spirit is they're, they're taken out of the world and they're placed into the body of Christ. They're immersed into the spiritual body of Christ and they take on the identity of Christ and they're united with Christ and they are in Christ. That's how they got there. They got baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual work of God. It's not something that we can do. And it comes as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. Now we need to understand before we get to Acts 2 that in the Old Testament and during the time of the disciples, the Holy Spirit did not live in the believer. You and I live in a time when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. That's, that's part of our salvation. That's part of who we are in Christ. That's part of the gift. But it wasn't so for the disciples. It won't be so until we get to Acts chapter 2. So the disciples, they had Jesus, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them, Okay. The setting in verses 6 through 11, the setting for the plan of Christ. The question comes, verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That sounds like a good question, doesn't it? Did you hear Jesus anywhere preach about the kingdom of Israel? No, he never did. He talked about the kingdom of God. and In Matthew, they used the word kingdom of heaven. Same idea, because he didn't, at times they, they used words that didn't offend the Jews. And the Jews understood kingdom of heaven. It meant kingdom of God, but they didn't say it. But they never talked about the kingdom of Israel. That wasn't the goal for Jesus to establish the kingdom of Israel. The disciples were not always tracking well, as Jesus would have liked. You know what? That's just like us, isn't it? We're not always tracking the way Jesus wished we would. And so they say, Lord, is this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And uh, that's not the answer he's going to give. 
If you know, uh, we've seen it in, in, in the New Testament. When G- we, we, we did the book of Acts a couple of years ago. People, when Jesus came, people were expecting a great king from the Old Testament, a descendant of David who would sit on David's throne forever, and he would rule with an iron scepter, and he would basically bring judgment on the nations. And people look forward to that. That's going to be an exciting day. And we're going to win and they're going to lose and it's going to be good. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, Israel's a small nation and they're not very powerful and influential like David's time and Solomon's time. Rome is ruling the world and Israel's just a puppet state. And there's a lot of people in Israel who are just excited waiting for the day that God would send his Messiah and kill all the Romans. Life would be good when that would happen. And, and so the, even though the, the disciples had uh, understood a lot about what Jesus taught, they still had some confusion about what was going to happen when Jesus... They understood that Jesus was coming back a second time. That's a good thing. They finally got that. But they haven't understood what it's going to mean when he comes back. Jesus answers in verses 7 and 8, It's not for his followers to know the when. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. So, uh, disciples aren't going to get the answer they want. It's not for them to know. It's never been for his followers to know the dates or the times. Only the Father is going to know, and he's not going to tell us. And for hundreds of years, as you have probably read, um, people have been trying to set dates. They did it in the 2nd century, and 3rd century, and 4th century, and 10th century, and 15th century, and 16th century, and 17th century, and a ton of times in the 20th century. You know, this is when Jesus is coming back. You and I are not going to know. It's going to be a surprise. There's no other way to say it. No matter how bad things get, and you say, oh, he's probably going to come. Well, he, he, he is, but you're not going to know. It's going to be a total surprise. And no one's going to know. It's going to be a total surprise, okay? Um, verse 8, uh, the plan is to witness. This is Jesus' plan. The plan is to witness to Christ's life and message to the ends of the earth. Pretty cool. Verse 8, but, Jesus says, You want to know the times and the dates? You're not going to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So something's going to happen. They are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when they do, they are going to receive something pretty awesome. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. The word is dunamis, and it's the same word we get dynamite. This is like This is the same word that raised Jesus from the dead. Same power, and and it's going to come on the followers of Christ, and they're going to receive this power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And there's a purpose for this. This isn't so you can feel good and do neat things and be cool. It's about you will be my witnesses. This is a prophecy and a command. You will be my witnesses. His followers will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's a prophecy because that's what's going to happen, and it's a command because that's what they're supposed to do. And you know what? That applies to us. Because if we are followers of Christ, 
We are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, just like them. And so he says, Here's, uh, you're going to be my witnesses. And he gives a layout here in, in Jerusalem. You've got to start there. You've got to go back to Jerusalem. You've got to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And you're going to be a witness in Jerusalem. And this is where they killed Jesus. They crucified him. They nailed him to the cross. And they made fun of him. And we're going to start there. We're going to give some clarity to Jerusalem, okay? And then we're going to, we're going to move out. We're going, to, we're going to go to Judea. Then we're going to go to Samaria. Then we're going to go to the ends of the earth, okay? So let's look at that. You're going to be a witness. And by the way, the, the, the Greek word for witness is martyr. And the word martyr later will become those people who gave their lives in service of Christ. They were put to death because they were witnesses. But it's just a witness, really, literally. And what does a witness do? Have you ever had to be a witness in a case, a legal case? What does a witness do? Just tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God, okay? Just tell the truth about what you know about Jesus and what he's done for you. That's all. You don't, you don't have to be um, the smartest person in the world. You don't have to have a theology degree. What do you know? That's what you need to do is tell what you know. What is the truth that you know? Who is Jesus? What did he do for you? How, how do people get to know him? Well, I bet most of you could tell that. That's all you have to do. Okay, uh, let's go with the order. Jerusalem. Okay, and then Judea. So Jerusalem is a city. It's a very important city, religious center. The the temple was there. Um, Then Judea is like the province. It's like the county uh, around. A lot of Jewish people live there. And so, you know, if you were going to live in Judea, this is going to be a pretty religious area, highly Jewish area. Everything is going to be centered, uh, supporting financially the temple. Uh, Samaria. What do we know about Samaria? I bet a lot of you know that Samaria is a province just north of Judea where the Samaritans lived, and they weren't very well liked by the Jewish people uh, for a number of reasons. It weren't always fair. but um, So the Samaritans kind of isolated themselves and kind of come up with their own religion, and they had a Samaritan Bible, and they only followed the first five books of the Bible. And uh, the, view, the Jewish people viewed them as infer- an inferior race. And they disliked this. This wasn't God's plan, by the way. The Jewish people disliked the Samaritans so much that when they went straight north, they went way around Samaria so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria where all those people were. So they didn't like that. And God says, okay, once you start in Jerusalem, once you go to Judea, then you're going to go through Samaria. Jesus loved the Samaritans. Jesus went to Samaria and met the woman at the well in Samaria, the woman who had been married five times and was living with a man who was not her husband. Jesus shared about having a, a drink that would of eternal, from an eternal spring uh, that she'd never have to drink again and have eternal life. And then to the ends of the earth. So um, I think we have a, a map for this. So think in terms of our... Um, Media department worked hours on these maps. Maybe five or ten minutes. Maybe not that long. I don't know how long it takes. So there you see Jerusalem. And the body of water on the right is the Dead Sea. And uh, then you see at the top 
um, the Sea of Galilee, and actually the Jordan River connects those. And uh, so Jerusalem is a city, and that's where they're going to go be witnesses. And then they're going to spread. They're going to be pushed out. You know why? The church is a movement. It's not a building. The church is a movement. Now, that's not the only definition of the church. It's not really a definition of the church. It's kind of a descriptor. But the church is to be a movement. It was never to be a group that sat in one place until they all died and the building fell down. It's a movement. And so they they started in Jerusalem, then they expanded to Judea. And the way God did this was he brought persecution and he forced them to get out of Jerusalem, get out of town. So then they went to Samaria, and that was cool because... They were, they were reaching people they were uncomfortable with. So that's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now let's go to the next map. And so now, look, look where Rome up there on the boot. That's what's going to happen in the book of Acts. You're going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to expand to Judea. Acts is, uh, Jerusalem is the ministry of the first eight chapters. And then uh, Judea and Samaria are the next four chapters, and the rest of the book is getting to Rome. Okay? Expanding. The gospel will expand to Rome. That's the outline to the book right there. The church is a movement. God never intended for the church to sit and soak and be in one place and worry about, how do we feel about this? Do we like what we have on Sunday morning? The church was about moving out. The church was to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. We're going to come now to verses 9 through 11 as we close the passage. First, he ascends to heaven, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And that was fast. That's the ascension, and we're done. And it won't be mentioned again. He was taken up before the very eyes. There were 11 disciples who were eyewitnesses. Judas Iscariot is already dead. The cloud hid them from their sight. This was not an ordinary cloud. This was not just a foggy day. This was a very unique cloud that appeared on special occasions. We saw this cloud in the book of Exodus, if you remember. When God led his people, there was a cloud by day and fire by night. It was the glory of God that appeared, and people had a great security that God was present. The Shekinah glory was in the cloud. Other times, a cloud appears. In the ministry of Jesus on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, a really unique time, it's like way different than anything else in the Gospels, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They go up on a mountain. And then Jesus meets with two other people. Out of the Old Testament comes Moses and Elijah. They're separated by hundreds of years. Moses from the law, Elijah from the prophets. And they confer with Jesus. And the disciples are out here watching. And they are enveloped by a cloud. This cloud, the Shekinah glory. And Jesus shone brightly. He, they got a glimpse of just who Jesus was, just for an, for an instance. And now the cloud takes Jesus up. 
Jesus ascends with this glorious cloud. This isn't just a cloudy day. This isn't vapor. This is um, how God displayed himself. Then angels appear, verse 10. They were looking intently into the sky. You don't want to know why they were looking intently? Because they had just seen the Shekinah glory and they could still see it. As he was going, and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. The disciples were so focused, they didn't recognize they had visitors. Two men in white. Were these just men? Were they humans? Not according to the scriptures. These were angels. These were messengers of God. And this, um, angels don't appear every day necessarily. I don't know. I've, I don't know that I've ever seen an angel in my life. So I'm not trying to make too much of this. I think an angel can appear, okay? But I haven't identified any. In the life of Jesus, angels were a little more common That's one of the things, there's so many things happen around the life of Jesus because he is such a major historical figure and so powerful in God's eyes. So when Jesus appears, the demons get nervous and they start to speak because he is so awesome. And God uses angels around for for people to sort of wake up. And so God sent Gabriel to tell Mary, you're going to have a baby as an angel. And God sent angels to the shepherds so they would know to go see the baby Jesus. And God used angels in the life of Jesus. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was an angel who moved the stone. And it was angels who uh, spoke to the disciples later after the resurrection to tell them what had happened because they just were befuddled about the empty tomb. And then comes the promise in verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? It's time to move on. This same Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. They have just been given an amazing promise. Jesus is coming back. They had, they'd heard that before. He's coming back in the same way you've seen him. He's coming back to the same place. Where are they? They're on the Mount of Olives. How do we know? Verse 12. That's next week, but they're on the Mount of Olives. You can look at that, verse 12. And this is going to be a fulfillment of a very important prophecy in the Old Testament. Zechariah 14.4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Kind of significant, doesn't it? You know what that is? That's going to be a huge earthquake. Now, we didn't know this, I think, until the late 20th century. And um, back when I heard about it, it was the Holiday Inn that we're going to build. The actual hotel that was going to build on the Mount of Olives is... um, the Hotel of Seven Arches. And when they uh, went to build their hotel, they discovered there was a significant fault line running through the Mount of Olives. Today we know there's a fault line running from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. It goes right through the Mount of Olives and right up the Jordan River. And when this happens, 
It's going to happen when Jesus returns, and there's going to be a major earthquake right here, okay? Now, the stage is set. We have Jesus in heaven. He's coming back, and the disciples are supposed to go to Jerusalem, and they're supposed to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 Put it this way, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. There's the Creator God, Jesus, our Creator. In Genesis 1.1, he was there. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. You can't get any more clear than this about who Jesus is. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. When you think about this, Jesus right now is sustaining everything. Every atom in the universe is being sustained by him. And if he said, stop, whatever he had to say, if he changes his mind, we could evaporate. But I believe his promises, and we aren't going to evaporate today unless somebody sends a bomb or something. Um, after he provided purification for sins, his death, uh, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Majesty is, is a name for God. They didn't want to use God's name. Majesty was a way to talk about God, his majesty, his glory. And Jesus sat down at the right hand, uh, the most powerful and most prestigious location. And that's where Jesus is right now. Jesus is alive. We forget that sometimes. Jesus is alive right now. If we could be raised and see this, we would see him sitting on his throne right now. He is not dead. And um, I had a couple other passages, and I'm going to skip those. Um, I just want to remind us all authority has been given to this Jesus on heaven and earth. And he said, go. We're, we're, we're to be a movement. Make disciples of all nations, of all the world. We need to go. And it's exciting we have people at the bridge who are wanting to go and people who are willing to go and they're looking for God to direct them. We're to go whether... It's to the ends of the earth. We're to go out of here on today. We go into our world. We go into our neighborhoods. We go into our workplace. We go into our school environment. And we're to be witnesses for him. Let people know. Live in a way that people can identify. Oh, you must be a Christ follower. Um, and then give, have opportunities to speak. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you what he's done. If you're interested, let me tell you how you can have a relationship with him. That's what we're called to do. Um, so the church is a boot movement. It's not a building. God's plan is for the church to move and grow. And in the book of Acts, the church is on the move. It didn't stay in Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be sad if they just stayed in Jerusalem and all died? And that's it. I got a few people in heaven. I'm here today because somebody cared about me enough to tell me about Jesus. And they listened to me and they put up with me and they answered my questions and they helped me cross the line to faith 
And then they helped me grow as a brand new follower of Jesus because they wanted to see me become a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple. There is an old legend which says that when Jesus ascended into heaven, the angel Gabriel asked, Lord, what plans uh, have you made for carrying out your ministry in the world? How will people learn what you've done for them? Jesus responded, I left uh, to Peter, James, and John, and Martha, and Mary. And they're going to tell their friends, and they're going to tell their friends until the whole world has heard the good news. Gabriel said, what if? Peter is too busy with his nets. And Martha is so full of her housework. And the friends are so preoccupied, they all forget to tell their friends. Don't you think you should make a plan B? And Jesus said, there's no plan B. We're it. No plan B. Can you imagine Jesus picked us? Not, Not other churches, but he picked us, all of us, to be witnesses for our world. 